Team Schleck. Craig, you there? Craig Peterson, Company D2, you there? I am here, Jamie. I am here to be here. Thank you for joining us here on the Old Grab Podcast. And I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Tracy Fisher, who is your company mate. And Chris Hart is also a co-co-host. He'll be he'll <laughs> here, here and there. He's uh, going to listen in on Zoom because he doesn't have Facebook. And so we're going to... He's going to chime in occasionally, so. Go Dragons. Go Dragons. Go Dragons. Um, and, and this is an unusual time we're doing it here, 5 p.m. on a Sunday night. So we're making sure that uh, Tracy has perfect time to go back, go to sleep, because she's a disciplined sleeper. So very impressed by that, Tracy. Okay, that's not what I'm doing, but okay. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to go to bed. I thought we're doing this early so you can go to bed on time. Go to Because 9 p.m. is kind of late, right? Well, I will say that 9 p.m. is kind of late, but that's not why we're doing it. I have another engagement. Okay? Look at you. Look at you. Another engagement. How about that? <laughs> so thank you. Thanks for accommodating you guys. Well, thank you for being part of the Old Grab podcast. And Craig, so you're joining us from Duluth, Minnesota, I think, right? That's where you live? Yeah, yeah. Duluth, Minnesota, uh, right at the tip of Lake Superior. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful place and uh, kind of a... A hidden gem here, if anybody's looking to relocate. Uh, there are not a lot of high-paying jobs here, but if you can uh, work remotely or whatever and you love the outdoors, we have a lot of uh, a lot of outdoors activities here. That's for sure. Are you seeing some of the other people like relocating there because they can now work remotely? That's probably a pretty, pretty sweet thing. Yeah, we would think so, but we have not seen the uh, – population from california yet here <laughs> i think the weather's too much for 95 percent of the people out there so yeah summers are epic though right if you get past the flies are there are there a lot of flies there in the summertime uh no it just depends you might get a week or two with some bugs but um no yeah the uh, june july and august is beautiful which makes it perfect for uh, being a teacher because uh yeah we have uh a lot of lakes, a lot of outdoors, and yeah, a lot of fun in the summer. But the key to living here is to get outside in the winter as well. And so uh, I just did a nice long ski right before this. So that keeps your sanity up and fights off seasonal affective uh, disorder there if you can get outside in the winter. That's the whole key. Are you down you or are you doing cross country? Um, I have uh, cross country trails right across the street, nice groomed trails and yeah, through the beautiful woods, big pine trees and uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. That's a workout. It's really nice. That's impressive. Yeah, it's really, really, yeah, it's a tough workout for sure. Mm -hmm. I took, I took cross country oh, West Point. That was my life, that was my, um, what, what do they call it? Like, uh, there was like a life, life, a life sport. Like when we were, when we were cows, we had to take yeah. like one cool PE class. That was what I took. I yeah. took. I. But didn't you have two sports that you could do? Because I remember golfing and also bike riding. Like, was it two within one thing? Yeah, I, well, I, I just, did golf. There, there was one cool PE class as a, as a cow that we could take. That was like a life a life sport. So, and I I did cross country skiing. Yeah, I did biking and I bit it. I it like kind of ruined um, biking for me. <laughs> Do you remember what you did, Craig? Yeah, this uh, 
that uh, yeah, I took golf. I remember that, but yeah, this transition to cross country skiing when you're a hockey player is a little bit tough on the ego because it's not the most macho sport in the world, cross country skiing. So it's hard to look cool, but um, but it is a great workout and and uh, yeah, it's just fun being outside. I'm not really good at it, so I gotta I have to work really hard at it. I guess my third winter doing it, um, but yeah, I really enjoy it. Really enjoy it. So it's not the macho thing going from like a hockey player to uh, to, to cross country, huh? Right. And I was playing a lot of hockey until COVID hit. And then when we had to wear masks and we couldn't go in the locker room and all that, then I kind of, I kind of bailed and I haven't, uh, haven't gone back. And I moved farther out to the woods. I live on a lake out here uh, outside of the city. So it's really nice and uh, a lot of nature, really private out here too. So do you go like all out wuss? You have like one of those fanny packs while you're also going like you got like bring like a little like a little um, power bar or something while you're out there. No, no fanny pack, no anything. No, I don't bring anything really. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. How are you good at cross country? Do you fall all the time? Like, how can you not be good at cross country skiing? You're not going fast enough. Oh, how can you not be good? Oh, you have to have really good balance. And um yeah, there's a lot of hills and um, you got to, it's different than any other sport for me for classic skiing because your feet are in the tracks. So I'm used to being wide with hockey, football or baseball. So yeah, you got to, you got to have great balance to stay in the track and to go up and down hills. And, and then when you're going up hills, you got to do this, this number. And, so do you fall yeah, or you're so, just not as good as you want to be? Oh, um. I don't really fall anymore. No, the, the first winter I did it, I kind of got that, you know, out of the way. So, yeah, I kind of learned all the little tricks to avoid the avoid the pitfalls because you know what happens when you fall at our age. We have, we have um, one of the biggest uh, mountain bike trail networks here in the States as well. And I th- that's a little more dangerous. I have so many friends and, you know, broken collarbones and wrists and, uh, so the mountain bike is fun. I like it, but you got to really be careful with that. So, yeah. Yeah. Skiing's a little bit safer. Do you have a mountain bike of your own? Like, you have like a pretty tricked out one with like all the gosh, shock absorbing and stuff like that. Like they can get pretty advanced, these things, these mountain yeah, bikes. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I have a couple basic mountain bikes, but I have a nice um, gravel bike, like a cyclocross bike. Mm-hmm. So that's like a road bike that you can take on dirt roads and that kind of thing so that's uh i have a nice one of those so that's a good that's a good workout too i think you have a lot of toys a lot of toys me yeah uh well i live on a lake now so yeah that kind of comes with it so paddle boards and kayaks and canoes and um you know pontoon boat and jet ski and that kind of thing so yeah that's D2 Dragons, class of 91. Yeah, you guys should do a little, little Dragon Palooza over to his place and just go hang out with him. Just Have go ahead and drop yeah. your address in the, in the chat. Yeah, yeah, everybody. Nobody will ever come to Duluth, so I'm not worried. <laughs> nobody comes to Duluth, right? <laughs> Unless you I'm have to. If you're missing out, you're all missing out. It's It's a great place, yeah. But yeah, anybody open invite, stop by. I can accommodate, especially I'm home all summer. Duluth, I'm gonna Google it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you should. It's beautiful. Give me the lay of the land, Craig. Like, what what are you doing for a living? Uh, family situation? What you said? You just moved to this lake. Like, what? Give me the whole like uh, sit rep. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm out here now with. Uh, I'm a high school teacher. I teach. Uh, yeah, college yeah. world history, but like really private well, to seniors. You got you got to mute that other line. I hear you. Wait, Tracy, you got to mute your Facebook, I think. Mm, okay. Muted. Yeah, muted. Is that okay. good? Yeah, it's good. Okay, sorry. Okay, so, good. Yep. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I've am i been teaching high school for, um, well, I taught middle school for a while, but I've been teaching for 25 years, and I teach um, college world history, and also this year I started teaching personal finance um, by my request. I asked to do that, and... Uh, that's really reinvigorated my career. It's really fun uh, to teach uh, something so practical. But I really enjoy teaching history too. So I, I've been doing that for a while now. And I used to coach hockey, football, baseball. I gradually kind of let those go. Uh, I have six kids. Um, my um, my late wife and I had four kids: two boys, two girls. And then um, in 2010, her brother passed uh, suddenly at age 37 and we um, we adopted his two boys which were right in the middle of our two boys so then we had six and um, so yeah so I have six kids they're all doing well three of them are out of the house uh, my oldest daughter is in Boston and then my um, my next daughter Addie she just joined the Air National Guard and then she's going to go to college. Uh, she's between Madison and the University of Minnesota. And then I got uh, Sebastian. He's going to be also in the Air National Guard. And he's going to be an F-16 crew chief. And then I have uh, three boys at home. I got two hockey pucks uh, who play hockey most of the time. And then I have uh, my other son is a big snowboarder, mountain biker. Uh, and he's a really, uh, really good guitar player. And pianist as well yeah he's a musician so so yeah I got quite a crew uh, when they're all here it's pretty intense uh, we lived in a smaller house right by the school and then um, my wife passed five years ago and um, just it was a good move for me right at COVID we moved out here to the lake right before it started actually and uh, so that was just kind of a nice transition for us to uh while we were grieving to kind of get out of our our house, we you know we, the kids grew up in and kind of start fresh out here. So that's been it's been great. Yeah, so I, I really enjoy my career. I'm pretty lucky. Uh, I've got healthy and kids that are talented in many ways, and um, yeah, life's good. I, I enjoy my job, and it's good. Yeah. What else you want to know? <laughs> no, that's that that that's awesome. I'm curious about on the uh, you mentioned the um, personal finance thing. Um, so th this is where you teach future uh, future privates and specialists that having checks in your checkbook doesn't mean you have money, right? You have to <laughs> balance your checkbook. Right, right. Yeah, I don't think anybody balances checkbooks anymore. But I, you know, I tell them how to, you know, check your uh, your banking app and things like that. Yeah, check we your, go through yeah, that. So. Yeah, check your online. Yeah. Make sure that you uh, aren't going out there and bouncing a bunch of checks, right? Like Joe, 
like Joey Bag of Donuts used to do. Yeah, so my son at at uh, he's at tech school down at Shepherd down in Texas, and I kept getting notices that he's overdrawn his account, and I you know, and it's transferring from his savings. But I told him I said, hey, back in the back in the day in the army, you could get you'd lose your weekend pass if you bounced a check, you know. So you can't be bouncing checks, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's fun. Excuse me. He's the one in the Air National Guard. Yes. Yeah. They don't do that. Yeah, and then he's he's going on to um, um, flight school. He's or he's going to go to an aviation program at the University of North Dakota and become a pilot. So, but um, I have all these students. We have a really great National Guard unit here, Air National Guard unit, and they um, they fly F-16s. In fact, one of them shot down one of the, one of the Chinese balloons. Actually, um, that was a plane from from here. Oh really? And uh, yeah, and uh, so my kids, I've had so many students join this unit, and they all come back and they say, "I made money in college, you know, like I graduated from college with money in the bank because the guard paid for all, you know, paid for all my tuition plus GI Bill and everything." So anyway, that's been, you know, it's a good good deal for them. And what so are their wait, ages, Craig? Oops, sorry, Jimmy. I was gonna ask the same question. You are on the same same wavelength. Mm -hmm. I just I just wrote it down because it's changing all the time, right? So I got. Uh, so yeah, Sophie's Sophie's twenty two, Eddie's twenty, Sebastian's nineteen, George is eighteen, Elliot is seventeen, and Henry is sixteen. Holy schmoly! Hence. Hence your theme song that you, your walk-up song, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know, I I picked that song for a couple different reasons. And first of all, it was just kind of brought me back to the 90s. And then uh, it was released in 1991. I, I looked that up later. And then uh, I have teenagers in my classroom every day. And I've been around teenagers a lot. And I think of this line from this song when I, I show up and eight o'clock, there's 30 teenagers staring at me from their desks. And I think, I look at them and I think, here we are now, entertain us. Here, <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I gotta do, Great. I gotta engage them somehow today. Yeah. That's awesome. And then, yeah. And how do you do that? And then are you, how do I entertain them? Yeah. Uh, uh, I mostly sing Led Zeppelin songs and stuff like that. No, no, I don't. No, no, it's a challenge. Uh, my job is um, a challenge every day. I mean, you have to be creative. You have to be, um, you have to have a, a variety of tricks to kind of keep them going. And, mm -hmm. you know, teenagers are, are interesting humans sometimes they're subhuman right <laughs> well, we were and, just uh, on a call but, of healthy leaders and they there were three teachers there and they said like they're like ah, with some of the kids like they're like i gotta remind myself this is just a fifth grader just a junior and we were just kind of yeah. singing their praises that they're able to yeah. do what you do i would i could never do it yeah no you you could you'd be great actually it's, I think it's like any job. I like. I mean, you can be a victim if you want, or you can. Um, I'm not saying you're the, the other people over that, 
but uh, it's, you know, um, it is what you make of it. And I mean, being around these kids is, uh, it keeps you young and it's, it's wonderful and you can have a big impact on them. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy them. I, I liked high school and I liked high school athletics and I like, you know, being around, you know, young people. So the energy is great. It's, it's really fun. Yeah. It's a good job. Clearly you love it. I, wow. Spoken like the Craig I remember from West Point, just super, super positive all the time. Really? Hmm. I was just trying to survive. <laughs> Again, humility. Right? So, yeah. So Jamie, do you want the third reason I picked the, uh, the Nirvana yeah. song? Well, right? I want to hear the third reason because it also connects to another old grad podcast theme song. So we should, we should talk about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, it does tie in. So uh, I got stationed in Germany, and we had a couple apartments. Uh, the single officers lived off base uh, where we were, Babenhausen Kasern. And so we lived in this little town called Stockstadt, and we had two large apartments that it seemed like probably 20 lieutenants rotated through. You know, it was like a frat house almost, but it was a nice place. And... Um, I lived there with a number of different people. First, it was John Griffin, and then um, Jerry O'Donnell was in '92, and then uh, and then I moved over with uh, Richie Sheridan and Joe Ozarek, and then we had um, yeah, we had a whole bunch of people rotating through and from there, younger guys and stuff. That sounds like so. A, anyway, West Point Hall of Fame right there. West Point. Hall it was yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If the walls could talk, I think yeah. So Richie and I decided to throw a, uh, a classy Christmas party, and we invited a lot of our German friends, you know, a lot of our lieutenant friends uh, from, you know, from up in Mainz and Wiesbaden. And so, you know, we had we had, we had a good party set up. We wore white shirts and ties. We had nice food, and um, you know, it was a nice party. And then we were playing Christmas music, I believe, and everybody was just kind of chill. We had a giant dining room table full of food and drinks. And uh, we might have even had a tablecloth on it, I'm not sure. And uh, so everybody's having a good time, just kind of chill. All of a sudden, Scotty Williams uh, starts DJing. And he got rid of the Christmas music. And then I think first came out the Doors, Peace Rock, right? And that kind of got, you know, that, that was an old song from the Mule Bar and uh, whatever else and it, it got everybody dancing a little bit and pretty soon we had um, Brett Peckis and Willie Huff on top of our dining room table now um, so they were I believe taking their shirts off and dancing on the table and they checked to see if the table was rated for over 500 pounds or whatever they were and then Scotty played Smells Like Teen Spirit, and the table came down. The table came down. Everything shattered. Bodies strewn everywhere. And the weirdest thing happened. Richie and I were standing there looking in disbelief. And people started jumping into the broken glass and rolling around on the floor. Uh, and while Smells Like Teen Spirit was playing, right? So... And Richie and I are just standing there shaking our heads. Uh, and so we wake up the next morning 
we brought out the old camcorder and we were going to document the carnage. And so I had this video and we're interviewing people. And I remember a couple quotes. Brooks Cretion says, oh, my God, it looks like Antietam. <laughs> and then we had um, Sean Crowley. We had a close up of him and he said, Merry Christmas. I think not. I think not. So anyway, I, I blame Williams for inciting a riot with with, uh, you know, his musical choices there and and, uh, you know, brought the place down. And yeah, it was it was a bizarre deal. But we got it cleaned up and everything was OK. And a lot of good laughs. <laughs> but whenever I hear that song, I, I do chuckle a little bit thinking back to watching, um, you know, Petkus and Willie Huff dancing on our table. And it wasn't like we were going to stop them. You know, how, you know, how do you stop those guys? There's no way. Yeah. So, but it was good. So we just blame Scotty for the whole thing. Cause you know, that was easier. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great story. Did you, um, did you listen to the Brad Peckis interview that I did? I did. Yeah. It was very interesting. Yeah. That was good. Is it, he was, I can't believe the cow English story. Yeah, I did. I didn't know the whole English story. I can't believe that. It's still, it's unbelievable. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Yeah, yeah. What other? Um, you, you see, you you listen to a few of these podcasts too, right? Which which other podcasts have you listened to? Um, let's see. Kenny Kenny walks right. That one. That that was really right. good. And then, um, yeah, I've listened to quite a few of them. Uh, actually, over the last couple of years, I think, you know, probably between five and 10, I think. But cool. yeah, it's just really interesting to hear everybody's journey and uh, everybody's a little, uh, you know, has a different path. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. The, the thing that struck me, Craig, I was looking at your pre-call notes or whatever, it was, it was referencing um, not really being a part of, you know, West Point or going to many events. Will you Speak to that point, because I think that's really poignant for where we are right now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it's just, I think living here, I'm really, like, I can go months and months without, I mean, ever talking about West Point or, you know, talking to anybody who knows anything about West Point. I think probably most of the people I work with don't even know I went there or what it is or anything like that. So I just kind of been out of the loop, you know, and I, you know, I didn't enter the corporate world or anything like that. And um, so I, I, you know, I wasn't really networking for jobs or anything like that. And uh, I don't know, I was just kind of out of the loop. And then as a teacher, uh, you know, all the reunions in Army, in Army Navy are at really just intense times for me. Like the fall is getting school going. I was coaching football. Winter, I was always coaching hockey. My kids were involved in several activities. Uh, you know, I mean, some of those Army Navy weekends that I I wanted to try to make it. I, you know, my kids had three tournaments in three different states and and things like that. <laughs> and, and yeah, and so the, I, you know, I, I was just like, you know what, that, there'll be a time when I can do all that stuff. But um, you know, I think I've only been back to West Point twice. I went to visit John Melcon once. I think I went to Richie Sheridan's wedding there and uh, 
I brought my kids there once, you know, when we visited uh, John Melcon and took a tour and that kind of thing. But yeah, I've been pretty disconnected um, and really not intentionally, just kind of life got going and I had really, you know, no reason to be connected very closely. And, but I, I, I regret that a little bit. I wish I would have stayed more involved, but it's just, yeah, life I, happens. I, I, well, look, I think the reality is a lot of us have not been very involved either. Like, you know, we just had our heads down, you know, you're raising kids, you're job you know like we're only now at the point now we could begin to look up a little bit on the horizon like wow like we've been all yeah. running in these parallel journeys right we've all like we have this you know common this common origin this common first set of experiences we're running these parallel journeys and now we're kind of reconnecting and the beauty of it is too i think for me personally i feel like there's a level of uh just vulnerability that you could have with your classmates that you that you really can't have with anybody else like we all know, we all know what we've done. We all know that we've, you know, had ups and downs and it's okay. So it's, uh, it's, 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 it's all great, you know, and, and Craig, I think of all our classmates, you've had one of the most harrowing journeys, uh, you know, with the experiences you've had, you know, you've adopted your, your two additional children uh, because your, your wife's um, brother died and then she passed away. So here you are, you are the guy raising six kids. I mean, it's unbelievable what you're doing uh, and what you've done. And so, I mean, no wonder you've been kind of disconnected now than that, because how, how couldn't you be right? So it's, it's perfectly fine. I think. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. And you know, I, I've felt, really blessed. I tell everybody I've had a fairy tale life for sure until, um, you know, until I lost my wife, until she got sick. And, um, but what I was left with is, you know, these kids that she so passionately raised. I mean, parenting was her hobby. I mean, she was a stay at home. She was a freelance graphic designer and, uh, yeah, she was, uh, yeah, she was a dynamo for sure. And, Anyway, but she left behind these amazing children. And so when she passed, I said, well, I know what my mission is, you know, like I've got, <laughs> you know, I've got my mission. I got these six kids. I got to keep going and raise them the way that, that we had always planned and dreamed on. So I just kind of kept chugging along and, and they were, um, they've been so independent mostly because they've always had to be because we've been really busy and they've, they've had to be on their own. And also we have this community here that just wrapped their arms around us and they, they take my kids on vacations. They take them on sports weekends. They, um, you know, the moms take care of the formal dance stuff for me and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I still, in spite of, you know, I, you know, we've all had our bumps in the road and, and it was devastating and, but, uh, but I'm very blessed for, for what we have here. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's overall life's, life's been really good. And I, I've been very lucky. And, and I know many people who have have broken relationships and divorces and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and that's, incredibly painful and the one thing about my situation is you know Andrew and I were you know we had a 
fairy tale romance for 23 years from the day we met to the day she died. And so I can just look back on that as we had 23 amazing years together. And, you know, that was, we're lucky to have that. So anyway. Well, you have an amazing perspective on life, my friend. And thank you for, for that perspective. We're going to probably go to our normal arc of the podcast, which is, um, you know, basically talking about the here and now. We're going to go back to pre-West Point and build back up to present day. So in that in that journey, in that conversation, we'll talk about the situation uh, where, where, where we lost her. Uh, but let's maybe, let's talk about, let's go, let's go to pre-1987 now and talk about your early life. Because you talk, like, the way you describe it here, it just seems like, almost like a Huckleberry Finn novel or something. Just beautiful, like, you know, out in, out in, you know, beautiful, uh, the country of, uh, you, you were in, you were in Minnesota, I think, right? That, that's where you grew up. So tell me about what that was like. Yeah. So I, I always, um, thinking back on this recently, you know, I realized that, uh, my world was really small when I was growing up. Uh, and, you know, I played, baseball, football, and hockey year-round. We had uh, cabins on lakes, and our friends had cabins. And so I grew up fishing and water skiing and, and playing baseball all summer. And I just, I, I really enjoyed sports and all my friends and the outdoors. And, and that was kind of it. My parents were just very supportive. Um, you know, they never let me have uh, motorcycles or snowmobiles or or any of that stuff, uh, you know, just because they didn't think it was necessary and, uh, or video games. I never even had an Atari or any of that kind of thing, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, anyway, so it, it was just good and life was simple. And then, um, you know, hockey started to, you know, become a bit more serious, but I, I plan, I was totally planning on going to a state college and trying to play some D3 hockey and, and then, um, and then I got uh, contacted by West Point. I was at some summer uh, thing I got invited to. And uh, so the, the coaches started calling. They came to visit. They came to watch a couple of games. And I didn't know really anybody in the military. I didn't know anything about the academies. Uh, and so I did, didn't take it really serious. I, I always kind of dreamed of maybe going to college on the East Coast, but not a military academy. And then they asked if I wanted to go out for a visit. So, you know, I don't even know if I had, I think that was the first flight I was ever on. For sure, that was the first flight I was ever on. To visit so, Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so, incidentally, while they were recruiting me, they saw my, my teammate, Chris Kingren, a 91 grad. I don't know if you know Chris Kingren. Uh, okay. So so they also recruited him. So they asked us both to come out. And we kind of looked at each other and we said, well, why not? We've never been to New York before. Let's go check it out. So I think the fact that we got to go together really made it easier for us to go. And us, so we went there and uh, I remember they, they took us around uh, – some of the 90 guys, uh, Scott Schultz, uh, I remember Todd Trachik telling us, don't come here, don't come here. <laughs> he, he wasn't their best recruiter. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, no, I mean, we visited West Point and it was amazing. And I came back and we both told each other we were going to make our decision independently, right? And so I thought about it for a week or so. And I told my parents, I said, uh, it's a great opportunity, but I don't think I'm prepared for this. I don't, I don't think academically, I think it would be too difficult for me. I think I could do it, but I, I think it would be painful. <laughs> I was right. So I had decided not to do it for a while. And then they said, okay, that's fine. And then I thought about it. I think the coaches talked to me again. And then finally, I, uh, I realized that, you know, my parents were, you know, going to pay for my college if I, if I didn't do this. And, uh, and yeah. I thought that was pretty steep. Yeah. Your, your parents growing up, they, they owned a Dairy Queen. Was that, was that your main, was that their main business was owning a Dairy Queen? No, my father was an um, insurance claim investigator, and actually, um, he worked for a Equifax, major corporation, and they investigated insurance fraud. Okay. And then um, he started his own business in direct competition, so he had that. And then he just had a business partner that kind of presents presented him with this Dairy Queen thing. So we did that uh, as well, kind of on the side. So my mom and my sister and I worked there through high school. So. Uh, yeah, we were slogging away in the DQ. Yeah, so my my, my parents were solid. Uh, and, uh, you know, my mom was working part time or at the Dairy Queen, but usually home. And uh, but yeah, so I had decided that it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. I would be really stupid to, to, to not do that. And so I, I remember I told them, okay, I'm going to do it. And I called up the coaches, I think. And, uh, and I said, all right, let's do it. And then Chris Kingren also decided later, a few days later, I think he decided to go. But we did it independently. So you guys were high school teammates playing on the same team. Hockey. Yeah, we were we were we were uh, we were best buddies growing up. We played uh, baseball, football, and hockey together year round. So we were together all the time. Incredible. Was he, have you have you stayed in touch with him? Yeah, I know. You know, he's been in Seattle ever since, and I've been here ever since. Uh, he uh, he was, I think he got stationed at Fort Hood, and then is that Fort Hood? No, uh, what's what's in Seattle? Uh, or uh, JV I can't yeah. remember. Tacoma, Washington, yeah. or whatever. Um, but anyway, he stayed there and um, got married and had kids, and you know, I'll see him once in a while. We text here and there once in a while, but yeah, he's he's doing well. And, great guy so yeah so it was it was pretty crazy and then actually you know I kind of went to a pretty blue collar high school actually because the I grew up out, outside of town but the the town I lived in was a big railroad town so a lot of the families there were railroad uh railroad people and pretty blue collar so um nobody was going to ivy league schools or military academies really for my school so so uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was an outlier for sure. Yeah. You can stay in Fort Lewis. Fort yeah. Lewis, right? Yeah. 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 It's now uh, it's called well, JBLM Joint Base Lewis McCord, I guess. Um, okay. It's Force and uh, and Army. So so then when when you um, when you head off to our day, do you go together with Chris? Did your whole family come? Like how did that how did that 
you know, you make a decision to go and then, you know, your, your senior year ticks away and then boom, you show up. Like, how, how did that go down? Yeah, I remember our families final separately, I think. Uh, and uh, yeah, my parents dropped me off. And uh, <laughs> like I always tell people, you know, 10 years later, I came back home. But, you know, from and I always tell kids this, that probably the most rewarding or one of the most rewarding parts of that was never having to ask my parents for a dime ever again, you know, just two weeks after high school or whenever we left. And uh, that's for, that was pretty empowering. That, that was maybe the best thing, just that independence we got uh, financially was, was pretty great. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, beast was beast, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think we all survived that. And then it got worse when school started, <laughs> in my opinion, uh, because, you know, I was just talking to Richie Sheridan about this and like, I basically liked everything about West Point. Like I liked the discipline. I liked the classes. I liked playing hockey, but it was just like drinking from a fire hose. It was just too much. Like, I wanted to be good at my calculus class. I wanted to be good at, you know, reading all my homework assignments. <laughs> I wanted to work out. I wanted to sleep. I want, you know, I wanted to do it all, but it was impossible, I thought. And I, I just, I know the reason they do that, you know, to cadets, but um, for me, it was just too much, too fast. And, you know, uh, most of us, on the hockey team, you know, we put so many hours in, and you know, everybody who played a sport knows that it, it's just hard to find time to fit it all in and, and be good at anything really. So. Well, clearly you were good at quite a few things while you were there. You're I don't know. I don't know. I mean, well, for sure. at hockey, for sure. No, I actually did. I played JV for three years. And then, um, you know, I made, I finally made varsity my senior year. And then we got in a big car accident, uh, blew up my face, um, you know, going down to the sports view bar, whatever that was. So, um, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, <laughs> no, and, you know, Richard, and I were talking, we're so you know, trying to play a sport at West Point is, and it, I, I know you had the same story from many football players that, um, you know, trying to work out, trying to sleep, trying to keep your grades up. It's just, it, it was a lot, but uh, not to say I would have been, you know, uh, the greatest player, but anyway, but I enjoy, I always enjoyed going to the rink and uh, I love, I love being up there and I've always been a rink rat. So it's like, for me, it was a no-brainer. I just kept playing. A lot of guys who didn't make varsity just – or they quit. They're just like, no, nah, i got to focus on school or I'm going to get kicked out of here. And we did lose a number of players. And the dynamic now has changed with hockey. And uh, I think Jamie and I were talking about this a little bit. They are now recruiting kids who have played junior hockey for two or three years after high school. So they're getting kids who are 20 – 20, 21 years old sometimes as freshmen, as plebes. And they come in like they've been away from home for two, three years. They're happy to have a place to play. They're happy to get free food. And 
you know, I think the hockey team now has done really, really well academically where, where we didn't so much back then. <laughs> but, I think, and that's, uh, that's, that has also become an even stronger force multiplier because I understand as well, not only are the hockey team, not, not only are the hockey players academically more accomplished, when they get in the army, they're also better officers. Yeah. And because yeah. they're, they're coming in, they're lieutenants, but they're 26 years old as lieutenants and or 20, 24, 25, 26. And then I also understand, I, I had a, just a brief conversation with uh, Scotty Williams at um, Fitzy's birthday party, uh, our classmate, Brian Fitzgerald, when he turned yeah. 50, this was a couple of years ago, but he was, re- he was recruiting at the time, junior military officers to come and work for, I think GE or something. And it's been, it's like well-established. If you get, a military officer hockey player from West Point to go into like these, you know, big jobs, they're going to succeed because they, they've already got that kind of flywheel going with like those three extra years. So it is kind of interesting that, that. Right. Right. I'm a believer in the gap year for, I mean, it's not for everyone, but my daughter, uh, Addie, she took a gap year. We have, um, my sister-in-law lives in Florence, Italy, so she went and traveled Europe, and then she came back, and then she saw her brother doing this Air National Guard, so she uh, um, decided to do that. Now she's at Fort Meade, you know, by Baltimore, D.C., Maryland, doing public affairs, and she is so ready, and she's learning so much, and she loves it, and uh, basic training was a good experience for her, and so she's going to go in now with basically the first gap year was traveling Europe. The second gap year was doing uh, Air Force basic training and public affairs tech school. Now she's going to be a freshman in college and she's she's totally ready now, ready to go. That's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely something to that, I think. I mean, I, I have, I we're all you know, we all have kids the same age. And I think parenting these young adults, number one concern in everyone's mind, aside from, you know, aging parents too, but uh, the gap year concept or just not realizing that life's not a 50 yard dash. You don't have to do like, you know, boom, 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 right through all this stuff. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most of the, so I have, um, I usually about 125 seniors every year that I teach. Uh, most of their parents won't let them do a gap year. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think that's a shame because I think uh, a lot of kids aren't ready to, to jump right into school. Yeah. Well, they need maturity. Of, speaking of gap years or life experiences, you say that Germany for you, that was like a three-year gap experience being in the army back then, right? Like that was just an epic yeah. So tell me some of your experiences uh, in in Germany. And I I don't want to skip over West Point, but I'm just thinking about the gap year thing and run this conversation. Yeah, so I went to Fort Sill first and then, you know, a bunch of us, you know, had picked Germany. and, And as soon as we got there, like we knew, like we laughed, we were shaking our heads like, are you kidding me? Like, this is a European vacation, like. And you know, when you're that, like, we didn't mind working hard either. We worked hard. We'd go to the, we'd go in the woods for three weeks. That's fine. But then we'd come back and we, you know, 
you know, we go to Paris on a weekend, we go to Copenhagen. We went to the uh, Olympics in Lillehammer. Like we ran with the Bulls in Spain. Uh, it was just one thing after another. Oktoberfest every year. And, uh, you know, it was it was too much fun. And not only that, just going to the, the local pub and just meeting Germans and just having those connections of the local and just and that's where you really learn about a culture and and uh you know luckily i had german in high school then i had it again at west point so i could i could get by and uh i tell people all the time it's probably one of the most rewarding things i've ever done is go to another country and be able to communicate in another language and, and you know, I wasn't fluent in German, but I was I was good at all the things that we needed to do, <laughs> get hotels and and uh, order at restaurants and things like that. And and uh, so that was an incredible experience. Yeah. What did you major in at West Point? Were you major? Were you a German major, or you just took it as a class? I just had it. Uh, I think for two semesters or something. Yeah. I I don't know if we had to take language or if I chose to, but I think I had to take at least one. Right. I'm, not sure. I think, I think if you're I was a, engineering, you could take two. But if you were, okay. if you were like liberal arts or whatever, you had to take three semesters. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I was a political science major. I I majored in international relations with uh, systems engineering. So I took. I think it was the social class. Is that international relations? Is that what that class is? Social. Yeah. yeah. I think so. And um, I, I just found what was going on in the world really interesting with the Cold, world, co uh, the Cold War and the Soviet Union falling apart and the Berlin Wall and all that. And I thought, I'm going to be an army officer. I want to understand American foreign policy, or I might as well. So I thought that was a good thing to study. I didn't really have any long-term ideas. I thought about going into the Foreign Service uh, or something like that with, uh, with that kind of background. Uh, but I, I just I just found uh, American foreign policy really interesting, and I I still do uh, I still you know try to keep up on that. And it ties Alice into my Alice Rogers says it's SS three hundred seven. Who remembers that stuff, Alex? Oh wow, yeah, yeah, SS three hundred seven. Remember running? <laughs> Who said that? Alex Rogers. He's like SS three hundred seven. I'm like, it's real stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that worked out that degree kind of transferred to uh, um, social studies uh, when I got my teaching. And so I didn't have to take uh, very many classes to oh get my God. It's like Antietam. <laughs> and then. <laughs> uh, That's impressive. Where are we? <laughs> what, what other what other um, what other classmates from D two were like in? Did did you have any other fellow social majors in, in D two with you? Oh, uh, let's see. I, I don't think so. Um, Dave Matheson's um, a pretty beautiful dude. I mean, what what did he major? He major in English or something? He was English. He was on here. I don't know if he's on here still. Yeah, he's super smart. Yeah. Yeah, bro. I was a social major. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. Great. Come on. Yeah, 
Yeah. Fire this thing up. You're a social major too. Bro, we had the same major. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was remember. just a lot worse at it than you were, brother. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Sean Crowley, we had a close-up of him, and he said, Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris had his, uh, his, his, uh, the Facebook going in the background. That's why we heard that. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, Tell me some more of the of the antics of Company B two. Some of the some of the characters besides Chris Hart. Yeah, D two. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, we had a really good crew, of course. Uh, you know, I, you want to talk about Tommy and Johnny right now, or is that? Yeah, let's uh, talk about them. We yeah. have to talk about them because they live through our stories. So let's talk about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, I mean, Tommy. Um, you know, what a character. And I just, you know, I, I got really close with Tommy. He, he was just so funny and, and, uh, and he just put everybody at ease. And, and then when he invited me down to the Bronx to meet his family and, uh, you know, and then his, his parents always coming up with the tailgates and handing us beers and red cups. And, but, uh, you know, for me coming from Duluth to go home with, this Irish Catholic kid from the Bronx, you know, meet his family and friends. I mean, it was, it was like going to outer space for me, really, you know, everybody's talking different. Everybody's talking, you know, about my Minnesota accent and everything. And, and, uh, but Tommy was so funny. He, he always had some kind of shtick. He had something going on and he, um, you know, we would be out, you know, like, trying to meet girls and you know being all serious but he would break out his crusty the clown mask and start wearing that around you know and and just things like that i mean he, he just always had something going on and it was so funny and then when we were seniors see i had to disappear see these the d2 guys and gals or whatever they were so fun that i had to get out of there i had to put on my dress gray and go to the library to do my homework that, that's the only way I survived. If I would have stayed, I mean, we had two and three roommates sometimes. So mm -hmm. I'm in a room with, I was in a room with Tommy Teague, Johnny Tyner, and Bill Marshall. And, you know, I think, you know, maybe Dave Dwyer, Scott Pfeiffer. All, but anyway, we had Dave Velasquez and people coming in and out. Dave Williams, I roomed with a lot. And every, you know, it was impossible for me to actually do homework. I mean, I, I don't know. I couldn't focus. I had to go. But but when we were seniors, I was trying to study and, because I had to. And Tommy would stop by and he'd be like, uh, eggs, hey, come on. You need to relax a little bit. <laughs> Let's go have one. You're all stressed out. You're all stressed out. And so we'd go down to the meal bar, you know, to have one beer. And the next thing you know, we were dancing and spitting beer in each other's ears and things like that. And we'd come back at, what was TAPS, 11.30 or 12, whatever, I don't know. We'd come back drenched with beer and all sweaty and I didn't get my homework done. <laughs> but uh, no, just lifelong memories with Tommy. We did a, we did a summer detail together too. Uh, I think we did Beast when we were 
between Kyle and first year. We are beast cadre with Brian Melton and Kathy Ike. And uh, yeah, we got into all sorts of mischief that summer too. Um, we had a lot of fun. It was hilarious. And then, yeah, so I, I roomed with John Tyner uh, once or twice. And Johnny, you know, just always smiling. He also had, you know, something going on all, all the time. They had running jokes. Um, you know, Johnny was so proud of Texas and he was always, <laughs> he was always going mess with Texas. And, and that swagger and, that he would always walk with yeah, his boots yeah. on and his hat. <laughs> Yeah. And I just remember those guys were just funny and, and they were, they were kind and helpful too. And they, they would do anything for you, but um, yeah, they were just, they were just really funny. I think, yeah, we had a really, really good group of people. I was, wish, I, was gonna I ask wish I could have had more time to just, yeah. I wish I could have just had more time to hang around and just, you know, talk and have fun. And I was, I was stressed out doing homework too much. I, you know, that was tough, but uh, I think West Point would be perfect if they just eliminated the homework part, right? <laughs> could just do our classes during the day and then, you know, have dinner and our sports. And then at night we could just sort of hang out and I don't know, shine our shoes and talk and then go back to school the next day, you know? I think it's a good proposal when I'm the soup, maybe. Also. Yeah. <laughs> you were reminding me eggs. Um, I, I, I feel like this is the last semester. I can't remember Dave Dwyer when he was company commander and he lived with Johnny Tyner. And I feel like there was one other, there's somebody else in there, but I don't remember. I just met was Johnny and Dave. And I don't remember going when it was, it was maybe like comms hour, but going over there and they would make me laugh so hard like with their just crazy antics that my cheeks would hurt. Do you remember who else was in there with them? In that yeah, room? we switched. Yeah, we switched every semester, but there were a few times we had four in those rooms and three, and I can't remember, but the best one was the, uh, they like to mess with Bill Marshall because <laughs> Bill, you know, I mean, Billy's was kind of scary. Billy's a big dude and, he did not really like being messed with <laughs> and he was a rugby player and they had a rugby road trip on a Saturday and he had to get up for like a 6 a.m. a formation in front of central guard room to be inspected to get on the bus to go on the rugby trip. Well, I, I was just a bystander, but I don't know if it was Dave Dwyer, Scott Pfeiffer, John Ty, I don't know who all executed this but they turned his watch back an hour or two I, no I think it was like two or like two hours and they turned all the clocks back and then we all turned we all got up at like uh 3 a.m and then <laughs> and when he got up and he showered changed he got his dress gray on and we all were getting dressed and getting ready and then he walked out there <laughs> and we all stood at the window. We had everybody at the window and we were dying laughing. If we would have had phones, we would have been filming this, right? And so he walked out there. It's dark. It's like 3 a.m. And he thought it was 6 a.m. And he's looking around and he's just stood out there and he looked around and he peeked in Central Garden and then he just stood out there by himself. And I mean, 
talk about belly laughing. I mean, we were screaming, laughing so hard. And then he came back up and we all disappeared because he was, he was, <laughs> someone was going to die. And so, uh, so I don't know if he ever found out who exactly executed that one. But that, was, that was the typical kind of stuff that they pulled off and it was really funny. I just really recently funny. heard that story. I don't know if it was Chris Hart or Dave Matheson or Squez or somebody just recently when all of us got together was telling that story. And I never even knew that that happened. I think that that's great. I think that's one of the things like being a yeah. woman, you miss out on all those shenanigans. Yeah. Um, awesome. I probably got the details wrong, but it was something like that, right? <laughs> it's so great. Yeah. <laughs> what a great story. That is so funny. Right. Yeah. But and you know, for me, just. Go ahead. No, go ahead. This is you. Uh, for me, you know, coming from, you know, Duluth, Minnesota, and then just meeting all these people, I mean, I just the music I got exposed to with, uh, you know, I remember Squez and, and Clark Cummings were always listening to this cool, like, alternative music that, you know, that stuff that I'd never really heard or listened to before. And and that was cool. And, you know, Matheson from California, he always had a different outlook on things. And I mean, it was just, uh, you know, it's just a really fun mix of people and just to be exposed to that, you know, when you're, when you're 18. And like I said, prior to West Point, my world was pretty small and, and uh, not in a bad way. It just was. And you know, I think that it's just the incredible part of going there is being exposed to all these amazing people and all these. Uh, I mean, we had people from every state there, so that was that was interesting. Dave Matheson yeah. says you told the story beautifully. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad. Perfectly told. I was texting him earlier today, Jamie. Why are you asking about Dave and and since we're here in, at West Point? Oh, yeah, yeah, because I was in prep for this call today. I was trying to, I was listening to the podcast I did with you, Tracy. Uh -huh. like we On that podcast, you could not exactly remember what Dave Matheson's squad name was, because they, when he was a beast, when he did Beast Cadre, they'd have to like, you know, pipe off with a motto to their squad leader. And his motto, you, you verify what the motto was. His motto was, what was it again, though? It was... Uh, well, I text him today is pray for war. Pray for war. Pray nice. <laughs> pray for war. <laughs> and then he said, because I texted him today, I was like, first of all, when I was texting him, he was trying to, he was trying to remember the wrong, he was trying to remember when he was a plead. He was like, wait, was what was that motto? And I was like, no, 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 we don't care about that motto, Dave. We want to know the one that you created for your plebs and he was like oh that one I totally can remember and he said the first one he said that's easy the first one was pray for a war and the other one that you're thinking of is what he said is and this is in quotes all civilians are worthless except for the members of your immediate family Dave Matheson like he could not be more different than that now yeah <laughs> right Somebody's parents sitting there on an apron watching these, you know, cadets lining up for breakfast or for like lunch formation. And they're like, you know, pray for war, sir. You know, and, and all civilians are worthless. Definitely immediate family. So. And the thing that I love is that Dave Matheson, I mean, it's, he's like, it's just kind of the thing we talked on earlier, Craig, about like 
you know, whether or not you've been like involved in West Point or not, is that we're all still, we're connected. And, and if it's been a long time since you've talked, it does not even matter. And Dave Matheson is so different than that personality as we all are, but he's, he's like really different. And he is like, oh yeah, let me tell you what it is right away. He's like, he, he's like, it's funny. I have no shame in it. Like it, it's great. And so to me, that's the, the value of this, Jamie, what you're doing and all of us being connected, like just it's not the same as it was, you know, 35 years ago. It's just not. <laughs> I also have to mention uh, Dave Williams uh, was my roommate several times. And Dave was the kindest roommate. I, I'll still never forget this plebe year. He would get dressed, go down to the basement to a vending machine and get a candy bar. And he would come up and he would give me half. And then he would, well, he wouldn't say anything. He just gave me half. And then he'd go sit down and do his homework or whatever. And I'd look at him like, that is the kindest thing anybody's ever done for me right there. And that was just, Dave did that stuff all the time. And, and Dave slept a lot. And when, you know, later, I think we were roommates with, us roommates with Dave and maybe Billy Marshall. And Billy was like, Williams, like, how the hell do you, how do you do this? You sleep like 12, 14 hours a day. How do you pass your classes? And, and cause Dave got like A's and B's all the time. You know, he's, yeah. he's just super smart. And we called him the sloth because he went to bed at like eight or 9 PM every night. And um, so I don't think I've ever told Dave Williams a story, but I tell this to my students every year because Dave Williams had advice and he said, you know how I get good grades? I listen. Hmm. I just show up to class. I listen. And the professor tells you everything you need to know. Right? <laughs> you know? And, and he was well-rested. And he pulled all A's and B's and I don't think he did a whole lot of homework, you know, but he listened in class and he was rested. <laughs> and so I tell that to my seniors, I said, you know, because when you're talking to 30, you know, um, seniors in high school, probably five of them are really listening, maybe on a good day. <laughs> and so I always just try to get them to be to be present and be like, would you just listen? And like most of your problems would go away if you would just sit there and listen. <laughs> But they uh, they have a hard time with that. But Dave was was brilliant at uh, just going to class, listening, and 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 he's really smart too. That helps. Yeah. And I forgot this, but Dave Matheson just said that we also called him the Shell Answer Man. Dave Williams. Okay, I don't yeah. remember that. Yeah, yeah, and I remember he also used to smoke, which doesn't really seem congruent with like who he was. He and Clark, right? <laughs> Uh, maybe sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think regularly. No. Yeah. He's, is he an ER doctor now? Dave? I know he's a doctor. I, I know he's a doctor. I know he's a doctor in Salt Lake City or he was last I heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's a really good one. I think he's kind of a mountain guy too. Like, uh, you know, I think he's out West doing, doing things, uh, lots of outdoorsy things. I haven't really heard that much from him recently. Maybe some of you guys have who are on here. Yeah, I think he's in Salt Lake City, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Matheson said he's an ER doc. Yeah. Okay. 
So tell me, tell me the story about going home with Tommy McTeague uh, to uh, the Bronx. Was there, was there a little little rumble that happened there? A little, little bustle that happened? What, what was what was the what what was the load? Yeah. So, so Tommy, Tommy's like, yeah, come on, boys, we're gonna go down to the neighborhood bar, the Squeeze Inn. Uh, they have the coldest nips in the Bronx. Coldest nips in the Bronx. The nips were like the little half beers. Yep. Um, so they, they had a cooler, uh, just a tiny little bar with the jukebox. And, and uh, so when we went home with Tommy, I think it was, you know, it was walking distance. It was right down the street. So we'd go over there. And, uh, and one night or one day, I think we had been, um, we'd been there for a while. We'd been having a lot of beers. And uh, we're sitting there at the bar, and all of a sudden, this uh, this kid comes up. He, I think he was like six three, kind of obviously looked like a marine, right? He had the Marine Corps haircut, Marine Corps, you know, the way he carried himself. So he came up. He talked to the bartender, and he bought a couple of us triple shots of wild turkey. So, you know, I had already had more than enough to drink more than enough beers and i didn't know this guy you know all of a sudden this random guy like hands me a triple shot of wild turkey and i said and so i think i said no i think i'm good i mean i think we you know we've been drinking a lot today and i think i'm good on the wild turkey and so the guy got offended and he's you know he found out we were like uh you know west point guys he's like you know, when you become a lieutenant, you're going to get eaten up. Like your troops are going to eat you up. You know, like you're a pussy, all this kind of stuff. You know, you won't take my shot. And I said, yeah, whatever, you know. And so we kind of like got in a little argument. And I think it got to like maybe like a little pushing. And Tommy knew the kids. So he was like a neighborhood kid. So Tommy pulled him aside. He's like, no, no, knock it off. Just forget it. Leave him alone. Tommy kind of made the peace. Right. We're all good. And so Chris Hart and I are standing there and having a beer. And I, I think Chris maybe had popped off to the guy a little bit and earlier. And, and so the guy comes over, he, he's literally twice the size of Chris Hart. And, um, and he sucker punched him right in the temple and knocked him down flat, knocked him down on the ground. And so Chris, he's wearing a nice record. I remember he's laying on the floor of the bar like head down and i'm like you are right and so tommy grabs the marine by the shirt like this and he drags him out of the bar and he looks at him and he said you really fucked up now you're gonna have to pay and he's like well he's like yeah go wait outside so chris hart gets up off the floor He's huffing and puffing. He's like hyperventilating. He's so mad. He's like, <sighs> and he, he unbuttons his dress shirt. He had a t-shirt on underneath. So he gets down to his t-shirt. He's huffing and puffing, ready to go. And uh, so, so Tommy dragged this guy outside. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? What the, what's that kid going to do? Like, And so Chris comes out. <laughs> he's huffing and puffing. And the guy looks at him like, yeah, fuck you. And uh, and I'm not kidding you. The guy before the guy could throw a punch, Chris, Massachusetts 
it's Golden Gloves champion, for those of you who don't know. Uh, I think Chris hit him with eight or 10 or 12 punches before the guy even finished throwing a punch. And he, he fell back on a parked car and Chris got on him and kept punching him. And we had to pull Chris off the guy. And, um, and then things went downhill from that. I don't know. Some other Marine got involved. And then that guy, Tommy was dragging him through the street. And then pretty soon we just got out of there. <laughs> That's how I remember. But I, I will never forget seeing Chris Hart throw 10 punches in half a second. And that guy just dropped. He just fell right back. Timber. How's that, Chris? Is that about right? I had to beg him to come on. <laughs> I'm still laughing. So, first of all, that story gets better every time. But Chris, time. you said that was I'm, the first time you ever been in a fight, right? <laughs> that was your first fight yeah. ever, you said. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Can you guys hear me? We hear you perfectly, yep. Yeah, yeah, first time ever, for sure. <laughs> so, first of all, the guy was absolutely 6'5", right? You said 6'3", no way, 6'5", man. He was like the jolly yeah. green giant. <laughs> The story gets better every time. But, and and uh and I appreciate your retelling of the story. It was just about as accurate I was as I remember it. Um except I remember being outside the bar because remember Tommy's yeah. friend yeah. was the bartender. So and, and you also missed the Shirley Temple. You remember that? When when he's Tommy slipped me a Shirley Temple. And he had the whole bar chanting, surely, surely, surely at me. And so I was lining up shots for everyone to drink to prove like what a tough guy I was, right? So it's a long night. So, so I think I was outside and the guy was like, yeah, you know, is this R-rated or, or what? So, okay. So the guy was like, yeah, fuck, I'm just going to go, you know, kick this guy's ass. And Tommy, I think was like, hey, hey, man, you fucked up so badly. This is like New England Golden Gloves, blah, blah, blah. Ha ha, you got to go out now. And, and Tommy and the bartender like threw him outside where I was waiting. Or, but maybe it sounds better the way you told it, probably. <laughs> the, the only thing I would That's add is right. that if you don't remember, we went like to a diner afterwards and I was like holding ice on my eye or temple or wherever he sucker punched me, right? And then as we were walking down the street, we actually met him and his band of merry men. And because I had like a, one of those Irish clatter rings on with yeah. the crown on top of the heart with the hands, right? He, he had all these little cuts. Okay, so he was, I was, well, anyway, he had all these little cuts on the side of his face from my left hooks. <laughs> and and so we met him on the street and then we were like riding garbage trucks and throwing each mm -hmm. other into garbage the, the, it, and that was the morning like uh yeah it was mm -hmm. just insane mm -hmm. good times man good times that was, like a, that was like an epic weekend an epic to that weekend you know so craig um just to shift gears here real quick too another place that you often would go uh, on weekends was to the home of Paul Haggerty, another one of our fallen classmates and one of your best yeah. friends on the hockey team. And so yeah. you have some memories of, of the Haggerty, the Haggerty clan in, in West Hartford, Connecticut, I think, right? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, everybody who knows Paul Haggerty, I think, knows like how, how charismatic he was. I mean, he just had that charm. He was just such a charming guy, and he had that little smirk and that little little laugh he had, and uh, and he was another just super kind guy, super kind guy. And then you get him in a hockey game, you know, and he's he's the toughest player you'll ever you know play against. I mean, he at the end of every game he was bleeding somewhere, usually right from the bridge of his of his nose, because he would he would throw his body full speed into anybody. Um, but anyway, Hags was just a character, and and um, it seemed like everybody loved him. And to to go back to West Hartford and meet his all his high school friends. I still remember their nicknames like Chili and Dogger and they had all these funny nicknames and they, they were just really funny. And then to to go into his house and he's like, here's my sister, here's my other sister, here's my brother, here's my mom, you know, and I'm like, and you know, the fact that he, you know, he lost his dad um in high school, I believe, or maybe younger. Um, so to see his his wonderful mom um raising all of these kids and and to see these kids interacting and getting along and, and, and they were so um, kind to each other. They're just a, just a wonderful, you know, Irish Catholic family. It just, it just seemed idyllic, you know, and, and so I got to know them and, and, and spent time there and, and it was just really neat. And, and that always inspired me to, to want to have a big family, you know, and I, I just thought, that was neat that all these siblings had each other, you know, to, to, to lean on uh, all the time. And, and I'm sure it wasn't always perfect, you know, but just being an outsider and going into that home and, you know, and getting to know that family was amazing. And then, uh, and then Hags, uh, we went to, uh, um, we went to Acapulco on spring break and, um, yeah, we were in the airport or we just got there. I can't remember exactly when it was, but there was these couple girls there and, and I started talking to them. And I, I actually introduced Hag to, uh, to Trisha, uh, his, uh, his widow. And, uh, you know, and they had a incredible romance and, and they were just wonderful and amazing together. And, and I'm still in touch with, uh, with, with Trisha from time to time. I talked to her not too long ago, actually. And um, so, yeah, and then just to, to see him, those of you who don't know, he was a grad assistant hockey coach, and uh, they were doing dryland training and uh, running the steps of Mikey Stadium, and he, uh, his heart stopped right there. So, um, yeah, it was incredible. And uh, incidentally, my, my oldest daughter, Sophie, went to Boston, and I had her networking um, with some people I knew, and so Sophie got to meet um, uh, Paul and, and Trisha's son. Um, it was Nick, right, Jamie? Is that right? Nick, uh, Nick and Luke. Those yeah. Are Nick and Luke. Yeah, Nick and Luke. And uh, so yeah, so that that was a really neat connection. But uh, yeah, I, I hope to 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 meet up with the with the boys and and see Trisha again next time I come to the East Coast for sure. So. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful people. Amazing people. I mean, and funny, funny the world, the, the circuitous route that we all take. I mean, I've intersected with the Haggerty family quite a bit. Rosanna Haggerty, 
runs this nonprofit called Community Solutions, and she is just an amazing human being. And uh, I didn't know Paul that well at school. I knew him like friends of friends. We kind of knew of each other, but I, I wasn't I wasn't really tight with him. But I feel like I've gotten to know him so well over the years, and I can only imagine what an awesome classmate uh, he was. Uh, you know. So, um, but anyway, and then Trisha, Trisha is like just another Haggerty sister. There's eight kids total. And so she, you know, Trisha Haggerty is, you know, she's been remarried. She, she has um, another son. So there's three boys and she's doing great. And she's actually a board member of one of the nonprofits that, that we, uh, that we run together. So it's great. She, they're, they're, they're all doing, they're, they're, the boys are doing awesome. So Craig, let's talk now. So you end up getting through West Point, awesome member of the D2 Dragons. You go off to OBC, you go to, go to Germany and you meet the love of your life. Tell us about that event. Tell us about what that was like. Yeah, uh, so it's it all started from Oktoberfest with, I was walking around with John Malcon and Richie Sheridan and we were in the Hopper House tent which is mostly drunken Aussies and Kiwis and Brits and you know a lot of you know just gross drunk guys basically you know and everybody's just a mess and it's late and and all of a sudden these kind of um we see these young who look like college girls from across the way and um, if any of you knew John Malcon, he's 6'5". Uh, he's an honorary 91 grad, but he's actually a Princeton grad. Uh, he works at West Point now, John. Uh, but John says, hey, you, hey, you guy, come here. Hey, get over here. <laughs> and uh, so that's when I met uh, my late wife, Andrea's sister, Erica. So we ended up partying with Erica and her friends. Uh, they had... They had studied abroad in Florence, Italy, and then they came. They uh, they came back to uh, Europe to to travel some more and have some more fun. And so, anyway, we ended up partying with them for a while. And um, Erica wrote her phone number on my on my shirt late at the night or whatever in Florence, and I just kind of didn't think much of it. And then, uh, um, but then. John and I were like, well, let's go down to Florence. Let's call those girls. And so I said, okay. So I called her up and she said, come down. And John and I took his convertible Saab uh, down from Germany, down through the Alps, <laughs> down into Italy. We were, uh, we almost came head on with a, uh, a semi truck and uh, we had to like go off the road. But anyway, John could tell that story better than I. But, um, so anyway, we end up there and 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 we party with these girls again. And um, so, um, you know, we kind of established this relationship. They came up to Germany once, and then I went to uh, Florence for New Year's Eve again. And Erica's sister Andrea came, and that's when I met my my wife on New Year's Eve. We went out, we danced, and um, you know, then. We kind of went back and forth, Germany, Italy, and then she came up for the summer. And then um, I proposed that summer out on uh, the Rhine River, out at, uh, there was a, a, a rock uh, 
peninsula with the statue of Lorelei, who was like a siren out there. Um, anyway, but um, so yeah, so we got married exactly one year after we met, and um, she still had a semester in at Gonzaga University in Spokane. So then, um, so she came to Germany um, for my last um, seven eight months in the army. We traveled a lot, had a wonderful time, and then we, um, then I got up and we moved to Spokane, Washington. And uh, so she finished. I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and then we moved back to Duluth, and we both became teachers. And uh, yeah, we and we, uh, we had a lot of fun for five years before we had kids, and uh, then we had uh, then we started knocking them out. So we had uh, two girls. Thought maybe we were done. Had another boy, George, and then uh, we had, uh, then Henry came along, and then, uh, yeah, lo and behold, we got uh, two more a few years later. So we ended up with six. I thought maybe we'd have three, but we ended up with six. So let's let's talk about how you go from four to six, because tragically, her brother passes away. Her <laughs> perfect health, again, almost like, almost like the hag yeah. story, right? Just basically, just here yeah. one day on the next day, right? Yeah. Yes. So um, Andrea's brother, Patrick, was uh, just uh, uh, a really neat guy, really kind guy, a uh, singer songwriter. Uh, he had a coffee shop at UCLA and then he went to Rome and um, um, it's, it's a whole different story. But they kind of Andrea's sister, Erica, met a guy who opened up a laundromat franchise and um that took off all over Europe. But anyway, so uh, Patrick went to Rome and, to run a laundromat. And then he was, you know, playing and singing in the streets. He met a young um, Swedish Italian girl's waitress. And I think she was 19. And um, yeah, they fell in love and, and had two kids. And then um, she was from Sweden. And um, anyway, I will just say she went back to Sweden and um, to be with her family. And then he was working in Rome and, uh, things kind of fell apart and, uh, the boys didn't get taken care of well, uh, in Sweden. Um, there was some addiction problems and, uh, and then, so he got contacted by social services from Sweden. And then he, with the encouragement of, of my wife, Andrea, she said, you got to go there and get those boys and they're your boys. you got to go get them. They need, uh, you know, they need a better situation. So he effectively went there and, um, and he brought them back and he didn't even have the paperwork or passports. And somehow they let the boys on the plane. We still don't know to this day. And so he brought them back to his dad's place in Portland, Oregon. They were there for um, maybe a year, and then they went down to visit uh, um, grandparents in Vegas on Christmas. And on Christmas Eve, he assembled two new bicycles that he bought for the boys in the morning, and he went up to take a nap before dinner. And um, they sent my son, Sebastian, he was seven years old, to go wake him up. And he didn't wake up right there. And then so we got the phone. We were just going to, to church on Christmas Eve. And uh, 
we got the phone call there and then uh, Andrea said right away, she's like, well, we got to take them. Like we have kids here. And, and so the grandparents were willing to take them. They had other family friends willing to take them. And, but Andrea's like, you know, no, they're my brother's kids. They, uh, we have kids the same age. Um, we'll figure it out. And I said, hundred percent makes sense. So we, we, um, we kind of had some family meetings. We figured it out. And then on, New Year, they were going to stay there in Vegas with grandparents for a while, but then um, we decided they should go with us. And we called up on New Year's Day, and there were two seats left on the plane. And we bought them, and they came with us on New Year's Day uh, in 2010, 2010. And we brought them back. And uh, yeah, and like I said, the community just helped us out with, uh, you know, GoFundMe's. My friend, uh, they put on a carnival for the boys at the elementary school and kind of a fundraiser carnival for the boys. And, and everybody just took them in and, um, you know, fast forward a few years and Sebastian's a homecoming king and, uh, and, uh, you know, Elliot's just, uh, you know, doing really well. And, um, all of them are, you know, so, and it's like, they've always, been in our family and um you know they uh i remember we first got them they're like um sebastian said to andrea like are you my mom now <laughs> and so she said yeah sure i'm your mom and then um and then so then i was talking to some friends oh like are they gonna call me uncle you know uncle craig or whatever and then we just had a friend advise us no they need a dad you're their dad and so just from day one like I was dad and she was mom and away they go. Yeah. I just talked to Sebastian. He's down, uh, he's down at Shepherd, you know, working on being an F-16 crew chief. And so, yeah, they're, uh, yeah, the, the kids are doing amazingly well. But at first we had four boys in one bedroom when we first got them. We had already lived in a small house. We had mattresses on the floor for a while. And then we had the two girls together. And uh, yeah, so. It was pretty chaotic having all those kids close together. I'm not going to lie and say it was uh, everything. It was it was a handful, and it was. There were days we kind of wondered what we got ourselves into, but um, you know, we never we never doubted the that we did the right thing. So, and yeah, it's, several, it's and then several years later, life got much more complex when she got sick. Right, right. It. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and she, she was, Andrea was kind of the rock, the leader of our family. You know, she was home. She was like, she was the CEO. She was running everything. I was teaching, coaching, you know, running the kids around, but she kind of had everything. And then so for, for our family to lose her, it was like, you know, um, yeah, it, it was just the world stopped, you know, the world stopped for sure. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know where, and, and my wife was the, the healthiest person. Like we are, you know, locavores, we get local meat, local vegetables, local food, you know, like that was just her obsession. That was just her hobby, her passion. And we had the kids all summer picking berries and we had big freezers full of fresh berries and, and she was super healthy and, 
and it just kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, she got Lyme disease, and that kind of turned into uh, uh, an autoimmune disease called um, acute systemic sclerosis, also known as scleroderma, which is a, a terrible disease. If you are diagnosed with scleroderma, normally it's uh, the rheumatologist said you most people die the first five years. Some people go a little bit longer, but uh, yeah, so she got the the death sentence from the rheumatologist and, but she was determined to find like an alternative cure or some way to, you know, everything from, um, you know, DNA stuff to, uh, you know, we, we looked at all sorts of different things. Um, uh, even getting a stem cell replacement. Uh, we looked into that, but, uh, it just seemed too risky. And, and then, so she went to Tijuana to, uh, this, alternative program there a really great place where people were getting you know like cured from cancer allegedly and things and uh yeah and then she was doing well there but then she had a stroke and and uh yeah I flew down there and spent a week with her on the ventilator and you know that was that was uh that was rough times there and she didn't want the kids to come she wanted the kids to stay home and, and uh, not see her like that and she until the end, she said she was going to get better. She 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 fought till the end, the the very bitter end. Later, it's really tough because they obviously can't talk. So we had a whiteboard, and uh, you know, even on her last day, she's writing instructions to the doctor. You know, tell the doctor he needs to do this. I need you know, blah, blah blah. You know, so she was just fighting right to the end, and. Uh, yeah, so then there I was. I was in Mexico. I didn't speak Spanish. I was, uh, her mom was there. and But I was in that ICU by myself. And um, yeah, I, I, that was, that was pretty traumatic. Just having, the people there were very nice, but I could not communicate with them. I was amazed um, how they couldn't, how little English anybody spoke there at those hospitals, which, you know, in Tijuana, which I thought was, but anyway, uh, yeah, so that was uh, about five years ago. And uh, so, yeah, I had to, like I said, as soon as that happened, I said, well, I, I know what my mission is now. So I, I have purpose, and I'm really lucky for that. I have the six kids she left, and, uh, and, uh, and I have a mission, and I have a purpose. And so I'm really lucky for that. So, yeah. And clearly her love and... Uh she lives on through you. I mean, just even the way that you tell that story. So Craig, that, that is a, that is just a heart wrenching experience. I know that at the time there were classmates kind of rallying around you, your, your D2 family was there for you through technology. <clears throat> there were some GoFundMes and whatnot. Um, what was the first day, week, month, year like in terms of the, your ability to leverage this support structure of your classmates and people at home and how did, how did, how did, how did people show up for you? Yeah, well, first off, yeah, I think the, the, the D2 people and uh, they were, you know, really helpful, like the, the GoFundMe and just people reaching out from all over the place, uh, uh, just really kind and, and generous and, 
And so that was helpful. Um, and I was able to get, uh, you know, I think a couple weeks off of school to kind of get things settled. Uh, one of the, I think anybody will tell you this who loses a spouse is you immediately have to deal with all this paperwork, all the, all the, you know, the death certificates, the bank accounts, you know, the, um, you have to deal with that for months and months and months. It's, it's like, which, you know, of course you got to set up the funeral and, and all that kind of stuff. So it, there ends up being a lot of administrative stuff put on you that that's really, you're not really not in the mood to, to take care of that stuff. So, um, so that part was really hard, um, but all the people reaching out uh, was wonderful. Um, you know, my kids went back to school, uh, you know, right away. And then I went back to school after a couple weeks and uh, um, that was helpful. We had, um, we had a lot of families from our local community here, um, you know, bringing us meals for quite a while. And, and uh, you know, that whole thing was, was really helpful. And, and um, I don't know, I think, um, you know, we didn't, I didn't really have a lot of time to, to, to grieve a lot. Uh, so, you know, I just had to get back on the horse and I had to keep, keep going because these kids needed to be fed and they needed to, you know, they needed to get their schoolwork done and they needed to, you know, they needed support and, and I had to figure stuff out. And um, I don't know. And I, I still think that, you know, the, the West Point, the just the life I had led, like I, I was, um, I just think I was pretty effective at staying on top of everything. And I, I you know, I, I didn't curl up in a ball in the corner and, and uh, you know, just let things fall apart. I, I, um, you know, I, I just, I knew that taking action was going to be better. And um, so so we just kept going, and um, it, the, the strangest thing is, um, it, it was just so unexpected. You never expect, you know, at 50 years old, you're going to be, you know, starting over basically. And uh, so it's really bizarre feeling. So then, you know, you you deal with all those ideas, like, wow, here I am. I'm 50. I got six teenagers essentially and um by myself and i'm a teacher and <laughs> yeah that, so it got overwhelming at times but just uh the kids were the kids were amazing and and yeah, friends was, and family were amazing and and uh, we just we just dug out and we just dug ourselves out and did it you gave your kids ages before so i just quickly i wrote them down i subtract five i mean there were 17 15 14 13 12 and 11 when this happened yeah I mean, Right. Having to lead through that, having to parent through that, I, I I'm just in awe. I mean, the fact that you're able to do that is just unbelievable. And what what an incredible journey and example you you are for us. I I think of I, I don't know if you listen to the podcast with uh, John Abercrombie, who has gone through a similar situation. And he lost his wife, and his kids were young. He was getting ready to have a birthday party for his for his son 
you know, his wife unexpectedly passed away. And that weekend, he had a birthday party for his son who was like three or four years old. It's like, I got to just keep going on. I got a soldier on here. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I wonder if, I, 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 I wonder if those are these common traits that you and he have are things that maybe harken back to some of our own experiences we've had in the, in the past where just, you know, you got to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other bizarre feeling that you get is when you have a loved one suffering so bad for two or three years, there is, it is a sense of relief that it, that it's over because, um, so I think we had that feeling too, because she was in so much pain and really not taking the medicine that she could have taken to, you know, relieve the pain. And so she suffered a lot. And so, you know, there was that piece too, that it was, that the, the, the fight was finally over and she was, you know, she was going to be at peace again. Um, so, you know, you're, you have those uh, sort of feelings too, which you, which you don't expect, but um, when you've been living with it, you know, morning till night for two or three years, you know, that was overwhelming and it was exhausting. And in a sense, that was maybe harder, you know, just watching um watching her suffer you know um you know when she passed the sufferings over so that that was that was a, a bizarre feeling too but anyway it's something you just you know she was five years younger than me too she was 44 and i was 49 so you know and just based on her personality i i thought she would live forever even when she was sick i never thought she would die um she was just younger and vibrant and and um so yeah it's just the whole thing is just uh just really shocking but uh yeah so then you gotta figure out what's next and uh so here i am <laughs> well on that note about what's next i mean first of all again i'm just incredibly in awe of your bravery in this but also you discussed, you mentioned this, like you have to get to the administrative aspect of things and just kind of like not just execute in terms of being a parent, but there's legal aspects, there's next steps, you got to deal with bank accounts and all those kind of things. You know, one of the things that we've talked about is, you know, as we, as our, as a class, as we're all in the same age group of, you know, 50 to 55, you go over the next 10, 15, 20 years, situations like this happen, right? We know we've had, we've had several classmates who have lost spouses in the last couple of years. And, you know, there's been other losses too. Um, and and uh, so how to, how to deal with this, you know, how to, how to grieve, how to, how to support somebody who's grieving, how to create like a, a circle around, um, you know, meal planning and connecting to, uh, you know, grief groups or whatever there's probably best practices that can be developed as like almost like a resource guide for how it is that we as, as classmates can show up to support each other in these events. And this, this may be another byproduct of this old grad podcast is the creation of some kind of like standing, um, standing um, almost like troop leading procedures. Like these are the things that need to happen, you know, when something like this happens. Um, 
And so, you know, we've, we've lost recently, um, you know, two of our classmates have lost spouses in the last, you know, three months. And um, we also lost a classmate, you know, and so how it is that we can support each other and our families in these, in these types of situations is something that's, you know, top on top of, of mind, I think, for our class leadership. So something to uh, follow up on, I think, in the next couple couple yeah. months. So. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I think everybody's journey is a little different. And, the, uh, you know, I, I don't have any answers, but I would certainly be willing to talk to anybody, um, you know, who who wanted to, uh, you know, get my take on things. But, um, you know, I went to a grief group once. It was pretty depressing, so I never went back. But I did see a couple uh, grief therapists a couple times, probably five or ten times. And that was really helpful. They pointed me to some books and some good resources. And and uh, that was really helpful to me, really. So, um, yeah. So, There's a, very, a lot of good resources out there. Yeah. A very close friend of mine who was a class of 94 graduate, he passed away last year. He's a partner of mine in business. And so his wife, we, we, we see her frequently and we support that, you know, we're helpful with the family. And but class of 94, they lost four classmates in like five months. It was just a freak situation. And their class leadership connected those four widows together. And they've actually created like a support group for each other. And uh, it's been very helpful for my friend's uh, widow uh, to have, have that connectivity. So um, yeah. exactly the kind of ways we can show up for each other, I think, in these situations. Yeah, for sure. And Brian's saying that having a local society with many older grads have seen how other classes deal with the aging process, maybe something that older classes already have done for developing a collection of resources. Um, yeah. And I think you referenced that as well. And then Chris says, this would be a great um, byproduct or outcome for this effort. Um, and I, Craig, you so graciously said, I'd be willing to, you know, talk about this, you know, who better to talk to about how to help people than somebody who's been through it. And so we have, I mean, that, that may be something that we could do, Jamie. Well, I mean, here's the situation. Craig went through this event five years ago and, and John Abercrombie went through it 15 years ago. And so, you know, have we had the, the ability to connect those two, which, you know, now we, maybe we do with better knowledge of that would have been, would have been helpful, you know? So, um, yeah. But Craig, um, we're getting here towards the end of the podcast, and this has been amazing talking to you. You're a great storyteller, by the way. <laughs> he is. I want to ask him one more story. Somebody, Dave Matheson asked how you got the name Eggs. Oh yeah, it's it's not really a great story. I just I had uh, a group of older cousins, and it was just uh, Craiger Egger. Craiger became Egger, or Craig became Craiger, and Craiger became Egger. They called me Egger for a long time, and then one of them just started calling me Eggs, and then my high school buddies kind of picked up on that. And then Chris Kangren came with me. Although, you know, I might have lost that nickname, but Chris Kangren came with me, and he was in the hockey locker room calling me Eggs. And then, so then John Griffin and Paul Haggerty, and then everybody was calling me Eggs. So that that, that was it. That stuck. You yeah. can't. You can't no escape your childhood nickname when your buddy goes to West Point and plays on the team with you at the same time, right? Right, right. It kind of stuck. So, yeah. yeah. Good thing you didn't like yeah. pitch your pants in third grade or something. Or have to <laughs> like, right, like, right. Really yeah, I should make it better. Yeah. Yeah. But um, 
Craig, thank you again for your time tonight. It's been tremendous talking to you. I, I would love to just hand this over to you for any final thoughts or messages you have for, for our class. Yeah, you know, um, I was thinking, you know, I, I, I guess I still have a little bit of a imposter syndrome from the whole West Point thing, but uh, I was kind of thinking, you know, who am I to give any advice to, uh, to all these people? But um, I guess the one unique experience I have that probably a lot of others don't have is I've just been close with thousands of teenagers for the past 25 years. I'm with teenagers all day long. Uh, I've coached hundreds of them. I've taught them. I, I, um, and now I live with a bunch of them as well <laughs> and all their friends. And, you know, they have changed a lot. And I believe they are in a bit of a mental health crisis right now. Uh, the kids are really different. They're, um, I feel sorry for them um, with um, the social media and, uh, you know, how complicated their world is compared to my world when I was in high school. And, you know, I think we created this world for them and we gave them this technology and, and you know, we, we kind of allowed this to happen and it was all a big experiment. And so I think, um, I think teenagers need uh, role models and mentors. And I think, you know, all of you out there, are, if you can ever connect with a teenager and many of you have teenagers, but if you can even connect with one of their friends or somebody, um, somebody else, you know, like they do listen. So they, they don't seem like they listen, but uh, you'd be amazed. Um, what an impact you can have on teenagers. And they actually want your advice, even though they pretend not to. Um, they really do want your advice and they, they, they wanna hear your stories. And um, it has a huge impact on them. And we need to encourage teenagers to do things to get off their phones because they're happiest when they're not on their phones. And that means getting them outside, um, playing sports, hunting, fishing, whatever, just doing something, something else that they want to do. And I, I read some study that the only time a teenager is away from his home, his phone, is if he's playing a sport. Generally, when they're on in a game or in practice, they're away from their phone for maybe a couple hours. And, no other time are they away from their phone. And, and so I think that's the power of, of those sort of activities to really let them be kids in and, and, and let them um, kind of interact normally because the way we're all interacting and, and uh, you know, being on these phones so much is, is not normal. And, and my kids are the same way. And it's, you know, Andrea and I tried to stop it and it was like trying to stop a tsunami and you probably all can identify with that. But, but uh, anyway, I think teenagers are, are amazing people and they um, are so honest and they're so, um, um, they're so interesting. They're little kids inside. They look big on the outside and uh, you know, they just need a lot of loving leadership and role models. And, and so 
anytime you can reach out to a kid, um, I think that's something that the biggest way that we can get back um, to kids right now, because there, there is a crisis. It might be overblown. Um, and I'm not, I don't think we need to call kids. And I think, you know, a huge percentage of my classes have said they suffer from anxiety, you know, like, and, you know, I, I don't think we need to enable or encourage that, but, um, but they do need some kind of help. They need something. So um, that was my one message, I guess, is just teenagers. And the other one was, I don't know, I was in Tracy will be an expert on this one, but I, I was listening to a podcast or reading something. I don't know what it was, but he said, you know, when you reach our age, now's the time to put less time into your career, more time into your health and fitness. So as we become empty numbers maybe and have more free time, um, you know, that's the time to kind of take care of ourselves a little bit more because if you haven't noticed yet, the human body is not built to last and, uh, and uh, things start to go wrong. So the more we can uh, take care of ourselves, the health and fitness and talk to people like Tracy, uh, you know, the better we're going to be, we're going to have um, quality of life for the next uh, 50. I plan for 50 more, but we'll see. <laughs> I like it. Let's get to 100. Let's get to 100. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Let's try. Let's try anyway, right? Why not? Wow, that was great. That was great.